Luke 2:22. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Christ is newly born here. It says that in verse 21, they came to the temple to Jerusalem uh, to circumcise him. And then in verse uh, 22, 22 to 24, they are coming here for 40 days, according to Leviticus 12. 40 days after the birth of a son, they were to come in order to worship in this way and to offer a couple of sacrifices. In the first sacrifice, we see in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, quoting Exodus 13, 2 and 12, Exodus 13, 2 and or 12, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In the Old Covenant, it was necessary for the firstborn male, to, aside from the tribe of Levi, to be dedicated to God, and in order to redeem him, that is not to give him up completely over to the Lord for the Lord's work, to keep him in your family and household, you needed to pay a sacrifice or a monetary uh, amount, a ransom to him, uh, to, to the Lord for the temple service for him to be in your family. And that would be five shekels. It would be five shekels, uh, an amount that was necessary, necessarily given over to the priesthood in order for your firstborn male to remain with you. But all of them were considered holy to the Lord. The Levites did not have to do this, but all the other tribes, the males of those tribes, it needed to be done on their behalf. This is further evidence that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, and he holds the priesthood of Melchizedek according to Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. He, even though it was only the Levitical tribe that was supposed to do the sacrifices and be the mediators between the people and God, in this case, Christ is not from the tribe of Levi, and in fact, he's from the tribe of Judah, and he, he has a special Melchizedek priesthood. And verse 24, not only do they offer that sacrifice, that is the, the monetary payment, but in verse 24, they offered a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They came with these birds as sacrifice instead of the more costly animals, according to Leviticus 12, because those who were poor were able to offer less expensive animals, in this case, two birds. And this is showing their poverty, and this is what they offered for Christ. Now, we notice a few things from this. One, the parents of Christ are obedient. They want to follow the law of the Lord. They know what pleases God is doing what's in His Word. And they wanted to do that. Even when it regarded the ritual law, they were make, making sure to carry out exactly what God wanted them to do. We notice that. We also notice that they were poor. They were poor and yet faithful to God. It shows that we, no matter whether one is rich or poor, you do not have immediate favor with God. Favor with God, pleasing God, comes from having faith, and that faith manifested in obedience, whether one is rich or poor. Faith in God and obedience. This is what God desires, and this is what they did. Verses 25 to 32. 25 to 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
This man Simeon, we don't know much about him except what is said right here. That is, we don't know about his lineage, from what tribe he was or what his parents taught him and things of that nature. We don't know. But he was in Jerusalem, and this man, according to Luke, he is righteous and devout, describing how he follows the laws of the Lord. He desires to please God and live according to the word of God. He was not only obedient, obedient to the two tables of the law, often righteous and devout, or holy and devout, uh, or I'm sorry, holy and righteous, have to do with living according to the Ten Commandments. The holiness and devout part, the first part, devoted to God, and then the second part of the Ten Commandments, that is honoring your father and mother, not murdering, not committing adultery, stealing, lying, or coveting, have to do with righteousness, how we deal with one another. And this is the way he was. He loved God, he was devoted to God, and he showed it by his, his treatment of his fellow man. But not only that, but why did he do this? Verse 25, looking for the consolation of Israel. The consolation or comfort of Israel. In the Old Testament, in certain Jewish translations and commentaries of the Old Testament, the Messiah, Christ, is called the comforter or the consoler. He is the consolation of Israel. He is the one who will bring about God's purposes of redemption for his people. And this is what it means here, looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for the great comforter to come. Yes, we know that specifically of the persons of the Trinity, the Spirit is called a comforter in John chapters 14 to 16, but Christ is also a comforter because he's the one who will bring reconciliation and peace between us and God. So he brings us this comfort and forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. From this statement, though the people of the Old Testament who were saved were regenerated by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, not all of them were prophets. They all needed to be regenerated by the Spirit, caused to be born again. They needed to have a new heart by the Holy Spirit. And they also all needed to be dwelt by the Holy Spirit to live a holy and godly life. But not all of them were prophets. In this case, it, it seems as though Luke is telling us that Simeon was a prophet from verses 25 and 26. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is usually a prophetic phrase for the Holy Spirit to come upon someone and then he says or does something. And verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. It had been revealed to him so he had a revelation of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. This reiterates the fact that what he's about to say, his actions and his words, are from God. They're not his own natural or knee-jerk reaction to things. They're not coming from his human invention. They're coming from God. So what he's saying is right and true. Verse 6, what was it that the Holy Spirit told him? that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He would not see death. That means he would not experience death before he saw Christ. The Holy Spirit told him that. From Matthew 13, 16 and 17, it says that the, the many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. The prophets and the righteous men of the Old Testament, they were longing to personally see Christ, to see him alive, see him minister, see him die on the cross, see him rise from the dead, see him ascend into heaven. They knew about these truths from the Old Testament. The prophets preached these things, but they wanted to actually see it with their own eyes. Simeon was told that he would be able to experience some of this, at least to be able to hold Christ as an infant and before he died. Presumably he's an old man at this time and he was longing to be able to see Christ. He's called here the Lord's Christ. Probably taken from Psalm 2 2, they, they, the nations and the rulers of the world, they rage against the Lord and his Christ, Psalm 2 2 against the Lord and his Christ, which is quoted in Acts 4, 25 
and following uh, Acts 4:25 and following. So here, the Lord's Christ, He is sent by God to be the Anointed One, the supreme prop, prophet, priest, and king for us. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, he comes into the temple uh, in the spirit. This is also a phrase that is uh, common in the book of Ezekiel, especially the early chapters and the later chapters of Ezekiel. Whenever Ezekiel is taken up by the Spirit, it is said that he is in the Spirit and he's taken into a certain place or he's shown a vision of this or that. And in this case, the Spirit takes him into the temple. That means he's not going there presumptuously. He's going there because the Spirit has brought him there to meet the parents of Christ and to meet Christ. They, he sees and experiences that they are following the commands of the Lord, the custom of the law, he takes Christ into his arms and blesses God. He praises God with the following. Naturally, when you have an experience of Christ, it should cause you, if you understand the presence of Christ properly, it should cause you to praise and glorify God. All that we do and say ought to direct us to that. Not receiving our own praise and glory, but God's glory. Verse 29. Now, Lord, let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. He's saying, now I am content. Now I'm satisfied. Now I can die because what you said according to your word, you promised me, you told me that this would happen and now it has happened. Now I am content and I'm ready to die. In peace. Depart in peace. D die in peace. And when he says depart, this is proof that the inner man and the outer man are the two component, basic components of man. And the, when the outer man dies, the body dies, the spirit or the inner man departs from the body to go with the Lord. It, and we know this from Philippians 1, 21 to 25, to be absent, uh, I'm sorry, I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is far much better, or much better, Paul says. Philippians 1, 21 to 25. And in Second. Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, he says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent in one place is to be present with the Lord. And in the case of us now, especially after the resurrection, ascension of Christ, this is what happens to believers. We depart and we go into the presence of Christ. Here he experienced it and he acknowledges that this is happening. Verse 30. For my eyes, why? Why is he content? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light, a revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He has seen God's salvation. Now, salvation, which is abstract, is put here, the abstract is put here for the concrete. He has seen Christ. He has literally seen Christ, this person in, right in front of him, this infant. But he's speaking of Christ as salvation generally. Just as he did in verse 25, Luke did. He says, looking for the consolation of Israel. Consolation or comfort is an abstract concept. The material, the concrete, is Christ himself, the person of Christ. And this is what he means. He, I believe, is alluding to a couple of passages, one or both of these passages in the Old Testament. Genesis 49:18 Jacob said for your salvation I wait O Lord for your salvation I wait O Lord and Isaiah 52:10 Isaiah 52:10 there the prophet is declaring that the nations the nations of the world will see the salvation of our God he says in 52:10 the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And even later in Luke in Luke chapter 3 verse 6 he quotes Isaiah and he says all flesh meaning all kinds of people shall see the salvation of God. 
That is, John the Baptist is preaching Christ who is the salvation of God. This is why Simeon is content and happy to die. He has this privilege that God promised. Now, who is this Christ? Is he just for Simeon, this one individual? No. Simeon knows. And all of the remnant, the righteous remnant, they know that Christ is for all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's a light for all peoples. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, the first time we read of it in Genesis 12, 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In, in you, in Abraham, meaning in Abraham's descendant, Christ, in his seed or descendant, all the nations shall be blessed. Now, they are blessed in that they have now, by the preaching of the gospel, access to the gospel to be saved from their sins. They did not have that commonly before the apostles in the book of Acts went and preached. And from that day forward, from that time forward in the book of Acts onward, now the rest of the world has greater access to the gospel and many, many Gentiles believe that gospel. Not all of them, but many do. Not only did Christ come for the Gentiles, but verse 32 and the glory of your people Israel. He came as a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. He came in fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6 explain that He came as a light. He came for this purpose. Both for the Jews and for the Greeks or the Gentiles. He did not come only for the Jews and He did not come only for the Greeks. And the only way that a Jew or a Greek can be saved is if God sends His messengers to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit changes the heart of the hearer to believe that gospel word preached. That's the way anyone is saved, Jew or Gentile. Only way. And this is what he knows, and this is what he celebrates. Well, his parents are there, and notice what is said to them and of them. 33 the parents of Christ. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Here it calls Joseph his father. We know that mother, it means mother in the sense that she was the virgin mother and she, was, she conceived him by the Holy Spirit from chapter 1. We know this. But father here is adopted father or legal father because literally he was not that. And many times in, in the Old Testament and many times in the Jewish writings and even in other many societies, a father is called a father of a child not because he is the biological father, because he may be the legal and adopted father in that, in that sense. So we use that, the Bible uses that, and that's what it means here. It does not mean that there's a contradiction between Luke 2 and Luke 1. Not at all. Now why would they be amazed? They're amazed not because these things are new, because they believed in the prophecies of the Old Testament. They knew what Isaiah said. They knew what David said. They knew what all the rest of the prophets said. And also, they're not amazed as though they hadn't heard these things recently, because Gabriel, Elizabeth, others were telling them about things, and they heard things. And, and even Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, who told her amazing things. It's amazing because this person they don't know, Simeon, this stranger, presumably, he is the one who's saying all these things because marvelously, miraculously, the Holy Spirit reveals things to him and then he utters a word of prophecy. That's the amazing thing. And, verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, he blessed them, all of them, and blessed, and says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's a prophecy. Simeon says to Mary that Christ, this one, is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. He's for the fall of the proud. 
He's a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, Isaiah 8, 14. And even 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8, he says that Christ is a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. So the proud people, whether rich or poor, religious or irreligious, the leadership or the common people, it doesn't matter whether they're kings or priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, whoever they are, if they're proud, Christ came for their fall, for their downfall. He's a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. But for the rise of many in Israel, why? Because they repent of their sins. Isn't this what Jesus said? The tax collectors and the harlots enter into the kingdom of, of God, but not the scribes and the Pharisees, because their pride is their barrier to faith and repentance. They don't want to believe in Christ. But the other people who are ignoble, and many of them do ignoble things, notorious things, if they repent, though, they enter the kingdom of heaven. There's forgiveness. God brings down the proud, but exalts the humble. So it's for the rise of many in Israel. And also, he's assigned to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. He is assigned to be opposed. Jesus is the determining factor whether one is with God or against God. That's how you can know. He illustrates and shows to all of us whether one is for God or against God. Many people say in the name of God, they believe in God, with both within Christianity and outside of Christianity. They all say they are in God, with God, they love God, they fear God. They're in, in the good books of God. Everything's fine between them and God. Many people say that, but they hate Christ. They don't want nothing to do with Christ. They don't want to obey Christ. They don't want Him to be their Lord and Master. They don't want anything to do with Him. But He is a sign. And those who are against God will oppose that sign. And they will oppose it to the extent that it will hurt or pierce into the heart and soul of Mary. Can you imagine what Mary was thinking there at the cross, John 19, 25? She's standing there with John the disciple. She, she's standing there near the cross. Can you imagine what was going through her? The words that the crowd said, crucify him, crucify him, and all the all other false accusations and slanders that people had railed against Christ. She heard all those things. They came to her attention. She was witness to some of them, and others had re reported things to her. This is the kind of thing that she would have to experience. Probably she already experienced some of that, because she was pregnant, though not married yet. She experienced some of that, and people would, would naturally accuse her of fornication, unless they believed the words of the angel. They would accuse, have accused her of fornication. And even until he died, until that point, she still had to deal with persecution and slanders from people. But why does God do this? 35, to the end, for the purpose that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. God does these things because He wants what's inside people's hearts to come to the surface. They, whatever they think and whatever they say about Christ, He wants those things to come to the surface. A couple of passages that describe this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2.14 but thanks be to God, who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity... But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The apostle here says that Christ, when he is preached, there are two outcomes. There's an aroma of life and an aroma of death. Some people hear Christ and it is savory and good and fragrant to them. Others hear of Christ and it is a stench to them. They hate it. They want nothing to do with it. This is the purpose of preaching Christ. 
Paul says. This is the twofold nature of what happens in preaching the gospel of Christ. And it even manifests itself in the words and behavior of people. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 19. False teachers and, and sinners had caused divisions and trouble in the church at Corinth. At Corinth. And Paul says the following in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. There must also be factions among you. It must be so. That's what Simeon's talking about. It must happen that there must be factions or divisions, schisms among you, in order that, a purpose, that those who are approved may become evident among you. You will know the difference between truth and falsehood, a righteous man and a false man, a wicked man, because of what comes out of them, what they say, what they do, that's contrary to or consistent with the Word of God. It's one or the other. And it's meant to be for our good. It's meant to reveal who's really a believer and who is not a believer. It has a purpose. So we should not be discouraged. And this is what Simeon is doing to Mary. She, he is telling Mary these things so that it's not a surprise to her, so that she's not alarmed by it. And this is what God does throughout the whole Bible. It starts in Genesis chapter 4, actually. Cain murdered Abel. Abel had faith and demonstrated his faith. Cain had unbelief and demonstrated his unbelief. But right off the bat, in the early chapters of the Bible, we have an example of how the righteous suffer. So don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. This is the way it happens throughout history. That those who are peop the people of God, they demonstrate it by their righteousness, and they are persecuted for that. Don't be surprised. God intends for it to be that way, and He intends to encourage us so that we know we are with Him, that we belong to God, and make a distinction between us and the wicked unbelievers. We have another example. Luke 2, 36, 36 to 38, another example. It may be that there were so few believers that Luke needs to bring out these two by name to buttress the faith of Theophilus, his addressee in the first chapter. And this he shows, as the rest of the Bible says, that though the, the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seashore, yet it is the remnant that will be saved. There are many people who have the name Israel and who have, in some sense, the favor of God, but there are only a few who are really belonging to God. And that's what's happening here. Simeon and Anna. Anna is the next one. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This Anna, Anna is a, a New Testament or Greek and Latin way of saying the same name as Hannah, the mother of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's the same name. So it's a nice name. It means grace or gracious. And she's identified as being the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. This may be the same man, Penuel, as it's per, uh, spelled in the Old Testament, First Chronicles 4.4, 4, from the tribe of Asher, a prominent man. She's pr probably his descendant. She's advanced in years, and she has kept the faith all this while. She lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, so if she was married at a young age, she was married for seven years. And then according to the NASB, it says she lived as a widow to the age of 84. Others think that she lived 
as a widow for 84 years, but she actually lived for about 110 years. Some translations render it that way, NASB, that she was a widow for 84 years, or died at the age of 84. So whatever it is, we get the point that Luke is making, that she suffered the loss of her husband. She was only married for seven years. She chose to offer prayers and fastings, as it says in verse 37, night and day in the temple. That, that is, she was always there. She loved being there, and she offered prayers and fastings. Not that she fasted for 84 years or for a long time, meaning never ate any food, but regularly she fasted. She regularly fasted and she regularly prayed. She prayed, and prayer is common to all of us. The Word of God and prayer is common to all of us. Fasting depends on the circumstance. The, the Bible does not forbid fasting, neither does it compel us to fast at, at certain times or all the time, but it does encourage fasting as a supplement to prayer. This is what she did. She did it constantly, night and day. So we're told she's a prophetess, she's righteous, she's very faithful to God. And verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here, she too, like Simeon, is praising and thanking God. She knows that Christ has come for the glory of God. So she thanks God for that. But she doesn't keep it to herself. She speaks of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. There were other people too. Not very many, but there were other people looking for the redemption. Here's another abstract term. We saw consolation, we saw salvation, and now we see this term redemption. These abstract terms have their concrete form, their concrete manifestation in Christ. And the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem does not mean that the walls or the dirt or the rocks of the city are going to be redeemed. It means Jerusalem as the people of God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the people of God are given other names besides the people of God. Sometimes they're called Israel, they're called Zion, they're called Jerusalem. This is what Luke means here. The redemption of Jerusalem means those who have true faith, who repent... They belong to God, and they live up to the name God has given to them. They live up to that name. Let's see one example of that in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah, right out of the gate, he rails against the people for their sins. He calls them to repentance and he threatens judgment on them. And after he does that, he says this in verse, well, actually, we'll read a part of this judgment. 124, Isaiah 124. Then the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. That is, he's going to get rid of them as, he, as soap gets rid of dirt and as fire removes the alloy and the dross of the metals. 26, when God gets rid of the worthless parts of the metals, then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion, will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. See the contrast? He wants to call the people a city of righteousness, a faithful city. He calls them Zion. Zion is another term for Jerusalem. It's one of the mountains of, of Jerusalem. And he says he will redeem them with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So there, repentance is the hinge. And this is why she's speaking. She's speaking to these people who are looking for the forgiveness of sins that's found in 
Christ and identifying them as Jerusalem. Luke 2.39, 2.39, the parents returned to Nazareth. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. They returned to their own city of Nazareth in Galilee. It would have taken about three days to go from Nazareth to, to Jerusalem. They returned after they have done everything according to God's word. The text there, Luke says, their own city. By this he means the city where they resided, the city that had been their home place for a long time. He does not mean their ancestral home. We know that to be Bethlehem from earlier in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. Bethlehem was that. But their native place and their upbringing, their home was Nazareth. And this is where they brought up Christ. And that's where he began to grow, become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We'll talk about this a little bit later at the end of the chapter, about the grace of God on him. Notice here that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Luke repeats this in chapter 4. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Luke says, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. We know from Luke 3.23 that Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his ministry. And he ministered publicly for three and a half years. So from his infancy until the age of 30, he was brought up and he worked in Nazareth. That's where he was the whole time. Matthew says from Matthew 2:23 that he went there in order to fulfill what the prophets had said. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew 2:23. That is the prophets of the Old Testament told the people that Messiah Christ would be called a Nazarene meaning that would be his home place, Nazarene. Uh, Nazareth would be that. That's why he would be called a, a Nazarene. This is what Luke is implying. He's referring to this fact, that that's where he was from. This is an obscure place. It's not a prominent place. It's not a wealthy place. But God ordained that a light would come in Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah 9, 1-7. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would come out of there and He would be a light in that area of the Gentiles. That is, by that point in Jewish history, many Gentiles had come to live in that region, more so than in the southern part of Judah and Jerusalem. There were a few there, but more of them were up in the north. That's why it was known by that point as Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus was from there. Also, there is, you, you may hear, have heard, that Jesus spent some time in distant lands because he actually was a Muslim. There are some Muslims who think that Jesus spent time in Kashmir, in Kashmir, that area that's disputed between Pakistan and India. It's India and Pakistan have some of it, and even China owns some of it, that area, Jammu and Kashmir that he went there. Some Muslims say that. Not all of them, but some of them say that as part of their propaganda and to get Jesus on their side. But also some Hindus say that. Some Hindus say he came to India and he was uh, a, a yogi and he was an enlightened teacher and became a guru and things like that. He was a, a Hindu and taught Hinduism in India. He believed that and he believed in the worship of idols and so on and so forth. They say things like that. However, none of that is biblical and all of that is specious and spurious. None of that is true. People undermine the faith of Christians. These false religions undermine the faith of Christians who should know better, who should not believe them, and we should not believe them. 
The Bible nowhere teaches any of that. And even those kinds of things were taught lately in history. It wasn't until the Middle Ages, even then, that the Hindus and the Muslims started to say these kinds of nonsensical things. They never even said that before in their history. So all of this, nobody should believe. This is a lesson for us. Stick with Scripture. Stick with Scripture and don't let anything disrupt and alarm your faith. Don't let anything shake it. 41, verse 41. This is later in life, a few years later, about 11 or, or 12 years later. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers." And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. 41 says, His parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. There were three feasts, uh, of the uh, several feasts of the Jews, three of them that required that all the males go, and the Passover was one of them. We can read about this in Deuteronomy 16, 16, that three annual feasts. The Passover was one of these annual feasts. The women could go if they wished to go. Here it says that Mary used to go annually. She really wanted to go. She was eager to do these things along with her husband, which is further proof of her godliness. Verse 42. And when he became 12, we might ask, why the age of 12? Well, it was a custom among the Jews that daughters were to be accountable to the law at age 12 and sons by age 13. However, from their childhood, they were to practice bit by bit things of the law. For example, there was one day of the year where there was a required fast, the Day of Atonement. So when the daughters were 12 and when the sons were 13, that's when they would practice fasting for the whole day. But up to that point, gradually they would teach their children to fast for a part of the day and then a longer part of the day, year by year, until by age 12, the son, age 12, the son would show that in regards to this and other matters of the law, he had been practicing them. And by the time of the next year, if the parents had raised him properly, by the time of the next year, he was well prepared to engage in all of the practices of the law and to be held accountable for holding to the law. So it is probably that by age 12, this incident is mentioned because it's showing that his parents had well prepared him to be under the law, well prepared him to, to do that. So they go up to the feast, the feast of the Passover. Remember, the Passover was in Exodus 12 and 13. This was the beginning of the year, the religious calendar for the Jews to commemorate the deliverance from Egypt. So they are doing that here. In verse 43, after they had done so for the required number of days, which would have been to be there for a week long, because the Passover would be the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that would last for seven days, they were returning, and Jesus stays behind. His parents don't know about it. Why? Because in verse 44, they supposed him to be in the caravan. That is, the caravan of relatives and friends who would have all gone to Jerusalem at the same time, they didn't 
think anything of it because it would be normal and natural in places where you could trust your relatives and your friends. You don't need to be on top of your children every second of the day knowing where they are and who they're mingling with because you already know you're in a big group, the group that cares for them, and so cousins uh, would, would play with each other and sometimes one set of parents would watch them, sometimes another set, so they would mix and mingle freely like that. They didn't have a care. And this is probably what they were doing and they assumed and supposed that he was in the caravan among the other relatives, which it says. Verse 44, looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Among the relatives and acquaintances. So they naturally assumed, oh, we haven't seen him and it's been all day and nighttime is coming. It's time for us all to be together now. It's night. Let me go look for him. They don't see him. So now they are alarmed. So they return to Jerusalem. They go out a day's journey, it says in verse 44. They need to return a day's journey to Jerusalem. And then on the third day, they go around looking for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both, li both listening to them and asking them questions. They had some requirements in the temple and in the synagogue in the temple of what could be done and who could do this or that. And it is likely that in a circle of the scholars and the teachers, the scribes and others there, that Jesus had access because it was possible for outsiders to have access under special circumstances. Perhaps they saw something about him, they noticed something about him, so they grant him this access. And then if they wanted, or if the, the newcomer, the visitor, wanted to ask questions, under certain circumstances, they would permit it. They would put him in the middle of all of them. It says there, sitting in the midst of the teachers. So they would grant him to sit there, and they would allow him to interact. It says they were listening, and, ask, and he was asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Both because... He was endowed by the grace of God and the Spirit of God and because his parents were teaching him. This twofold method, the power of God and the upbringing of his parents brought him to this position that these teachers who were some of the most prominent teachers of the day were right there and they were amazed at him. But then the mother says in verse uh, 48, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. She's anxious. She's alarmed. She doesn't want her son to be lost, kidnapped, or anything like that. So she would have liked if Jesus had told her where he was. 49. Jesus' answer is, Didn't you know? You should have and would have known if you were thinking about circumstances, that that's where I was. Now, this is not a disrespectful and dishonorable kind of answer he gives. He's just making it known to her that it should have been obvious to her. That he had to be in his father's house, or literally in the things of my father, in the business of his father, doing what the father wanted him to do. That is, to have this foretaste or this presage of what the future would be like, that Jesus would be dialoguing and debating the religious authorities, that this is what would happen in the future. You must understand this. You must know this. Nothing is happening right now in terms of persecution toward Christ, but it will happen this way. And even now, as then, Jesus will have the upper hand. Jesus will refute and confute all of his enemies. But they don't understand the statement which he had made to them. They understood many things. Perhaps here they don't understand the full significance of the animosity that Christ will experience and the full significance of how Jesus has to be mingling with and debating those who are in charge of the nation but leading the nation into blindness. If the blind guides a blind man, they both will find, uh, fall into a pit, Jesus said. 
Let them alone. Matthew 15, 14. So this is in perhaps the sense in which they didn't understand the statement. They understood many things, but not the full extent of these things. Nevertheless, Jesus, he's not disobedient, he's not dishonorable. 51, he goes with them and he continued in subjection to them. He continued in subjection, which means he was already in subjection, obedient to them, and he continues to be obedient to them because he perfectly carries out the law. He has to perfectly carry out the law. He has to be sinless and perfect, 100%. And this is manifested here. He obeys his parents. And 51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Just as I said before, she continues to treasure these things, to contemplate them, and to understand, try to understand the full impact of these things yet to occur. She is a godly woman who ponders the things of God. And then Jesus, 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Wisdom and stature. It should be the, the term stature, not necessarily the word age, because it's obvious that children grow in age. But they don't always grow in wisdom and stature in the sight of God and men. They don't always grow that way, but Jesus did. This passage, in other words, thoroughly explains the humanity of Christ and even the perfect humanity of Christ, which is necessary for our salvation. Jesus must be fully human to identify with us and to pay the penalty for our sins. He's fully divine and fully human, yet without sin in order to be our Redeemer. The passage explains. And notice too, that if Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature, in the sight of God and, and men, do we not also? Is He not our forerunner? Is He not our head? And does He not lead the way for us? And if He does do these things, should we not also grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men? It is impossible to be a Christian and not to grow. It's impossible to be a Christian who does not grow. There is no such thing as Christianity without growth or without fruit. Christianity includes fruit. This is what Jesus models for us. This is what we need to have ourselves, to grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and men. Let's be like our Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.